today we have Paul King from England and I've got to know Paul over the last couple of years as we've been kind of journeying together over this uh, period of COVID and just a bit before that. Paul has a wonderful story and every time I listen to Paul I get inspired, I get off the calls with Paul filled with joy and a sense of hope. He's married to Stella and they have some lovely kids and they work in North England in one of the neediest parts of, um, of their region and uh, they, they work in making disciples. But we're going to um, tell a story that Paul's going to take us back into his journey from where it all began to today as a passionate disciple maker, a man with his wife Stella with vision and uh, hope for the future. So welcome to the podcast, Paul. Hello. <laughs> Great to have you, brother. And um, tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us your story as I'm sure you're going to really be a huge blessing to those who are kind of making disciples and, and doing this stuff. So take us back to the beginning and some of your story there. Yeah. Yeah, well, I was born um, in the mid-70s in a, a kind of really deprived part of northern England. Um, my mum and dad were separated, and uh, my mum was a heroin addict. Mm. She she was a single parent. She brought me and my brother up pretty much most of my life. Um, and in all of my life, my brother kind of just bullied me. So I grew up as a young child, just um, really when you should have words of affirmation spoken over you and, you know, you should have people kind of telling you that you've got value and you've got worth and, um, it, you know, essentially you can achieve anything and all those kind of positive messages. I think I grew up with very kind of negative messages and um, just, mm. you know, being called weak and really insignificant and, um yeah, sometimes not feeling safe in your own home. So that was kind mm. of my lifestyle. I spent a lot of time alone, if I remember rightly, as a child. I think we we kind of, you know, it's a lot freer in those days, not just for me, but I think for every child. In England now, there's a lot of, well, kids don't have much freedom anymore. There's, you know, there's no places to play. There's no, a lot of that's gone. So when I was a kid, we could do pretty much whatever we wanted. And then, um, you know, in truth, when I was little, really little, five, six, you know, I, I don't remember mm. being sad. I don't remember being, um, I don't, re- you know, apart from my brother being nasty, I don't really remember knowing anything really. Apart, you know, I was just a child. But I think one mm. day I remember going to somebody's house and um, when I went to their house after school, you know, I've gone to go in their house to play with them and then I've heard that, you know, their mums looked at me and the mum's basically said, I don't want any, essentially what she said was, I don't, any, I don't want any little smackhead like that in my house. And um, mm. that word smackhead means drug addict. But back then it means heroin addicts. But back then I didn't know what it meant. I just I just know how mm. it felt. It, it, I felt dirty and I felt, you know, really cheap and stuff. So I, I remember that day kind of walking away from the house and starting to look at my life. And, and you know, then you start noticing things are different. You notice that your dad isn't there and other people have a dad. You notice that people at school have a bit more care and attention for you and they look out for you a little bit more and buy you Christmas presents and, you know, things they could do back then. So there was people kind of speaking love into my life in different ways. But, you know, it, it just it just is what it is. It's a rough estate, um, you know, lots of poverty, lots of other things. Um, 
And yeah, I think my mum tried. I think she was trying to work. She tried to hold jobs down. You know, she left school. She was educated. She had, you know, A-levels. She worked in a bank. And then she she just ended up getting with my dad. And my dad was going into jail and sleeping with other women and taking drugs. And then my mum basically said, you know, if he's going to take drugs and leave the kids and leave me, I'll take them and we can be together. And, um, mm. you know, that decision cost her a life, really. cost us our lives. But... But, but, you know, that was my mother. I don't want people to think she was just this kind of horrible drug addict. You know, she 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 was brought with values and everything else. She just made a wrong decision. That was all. She made a wrong choice. So, mm. yeah, I, th- I think when I was about six, seven, my mum went to hospital to try and help her addiction. So we moved. She got out. We moved again. Then, you know, we moved about f- five or six times. When I was before, I was like 10. I went to a lot of different primary schools. So, you know, that was affecting the way I could build roots and build relationships. Um, my kind of uh, awareness of what was going on in my life was was increasing. My brother was getting more into crime and drinking and drugs and stuff, even though he was only 11 or something at the time. And then as I got a little bit older, like to eight, nine, I started messing about smoking and, you know, we were robbing schools. We were robbing um, shops and, um, I started being a lot alone a lot on a night. Um, my brother would constantly be out of the house and, you know, my mum would leave the house and say, you know, you're going to look after him. My brother would say, yeah, I'll look after him. And then as soon as she was going out the door, he'd be saying, you know, you're all right, aren't you, if I go out? And and I'd be like, you know, in one breath, I want you out of the house because I'm sick of like, do, do, calling me names and picking on me and stuff. But at the other time, I wanted him to stay at home, but I'd just say, yeah, yeah, because, again, I didn't want him thinking I was a coward and weak and, so yeah, so he he was like he'd be out all the time. So my mum and then, and then um and then really another thing happened, which which kind of wrecked my life was I was constantly seeing my mum just getting out of her face on drugs. Uh, like I said, she'd be coming home late. I'd be sleeping in her bed. You know, I'd wake up in the morning and see her weighing drugs in scales and stuff. So I knew what she was doing. There was TV programs on at the time that was showing like kids. There's like a thing called Grange Hill in England, which was about a school, kind of school, you know, school life. And there was a character on there who got a heroin addiction. And, um, and yeah, so I started seeing the similarities between him and what was going on. My mum, my mum, I had friends at school saying she was a baghead and a smackhead. And, you know, my friend's mum was on drugs. So we'd be around his house and she'd literally be off her face on drugs. And, um, and so we knew there was something not right with our mums. And then, but she'd always deny it to me. She'd always, when I asked her, what are you doing? What are you on? She would never tell me the truth. And then one day I come home and um, basically caught her injecting herself with heroin. And I think that really like broke my heart because in that moment wow. I knew she was a liar. And I was like, you know, you are wow. a smacker. You are this. And you're a liar. You know, you've lied to me. You've deceived me. And I think that was mm-hmm. the worst thing. It was like the fact that she'd actually lied. And But yeah, so I, it was kind of, yeah, I was alone a lot. And um I think emotionally neglected, um, physically neglected. I think my mum always had food in the house. You know, she had money. She had a lot of money. She was really a big drug dealer. Um, but she just wasn't there at all. Mm. And so mm. you, you, you're open to just become a law to yourself. And, that, and that's what we mm. were. And then I came home one day. My door had been kicked in. The locks had been changed. And I thought that. You know, I just thought that that was it. My mum had left me. But she hadn't. The police had been, police had arrested her. They kicked the door in. 
And then, you know, I found out a couple of weeks later, she'd been arrested for dealing drugs. She was going to prison. And um, she went and got to court. She got sentenced. She got sentenced to five years. But obviously, because she's got kids, she was like, to come home, get her affairs in order, and then go and start a sentence. So that's what she did. She came home. She got her affairs in order. I went and lived in a different part of the country with my auntie and, um, and my uncle, and they had a nice house. They worked. They were normal. They had tea at a time. They had, you know... So all of that, and 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 I and I went into this normal life, and then at school where I kind of struggled a little bit, but you know I started enjoying it. You know I didn't have my family name anymore when I went to school. I didn't have the fear of my family name and all of that stuff. Mm. You know my mum never came to parents' evenings and stuff, and all that was gone. So I was free to just be who I wanted to be then. And then what happened was when I got to secondary school, um. Basically, when, when we went playing rugby, I started acting and being in plays and you know, I loved it. I really enjoyed it. I liked, I liked the pressure. I liked the attention. I liked making people. So I found something that I actually really enjoyed. And, and that again, when I think of it now is something my auntie and uncle fed into. You know, they took me to, you know, Stratford. Um, mm. they stuck me there, Stratford and Haven, where Shakespeare was from and to his royal theatre mm. to watch me play. And that mm. then became the, what I wanted for my life. A few months after that, my mum got a parole. So she's getting out of jail. And all of a sudden, I'm aware she's getting out of jail. So all of a sudden, that whole world comes crashing down. I start fighting again. I start smoking again. I start trying to drink. I start trying to, I start swearing again. And I start trying to bring this old person back out. You know, she gets out. We go home. And my mum just kind of takes me, puts me in the car and we drive off. I didn't even get a chance to say bye to my aunt and uncle and, it was wow. horrific for them, really. It was really horrific for them. So then I'm back home on my estate. I'm back home on my estate. Yeah. Now, this age, you're now 15 or something? 13, like 14. 13. 13 hmm. and a half, probably. Probably hmm. 13 and a half. And, uh, yeah, gets home. I'm back on my estate smoking. You know, obviously girls are about then. And it's all about the pressure of going with girls, kissing, doing other stuff, you know what I mean? And... I'm like getting involved in all that, start smoking weed, um, you know, because all these things are back there for me now. Um, and then this teacher was walking to me to my class, and halfway across that walk, he kind of stopped. He was probably trying to encourage. I don't know what he was trying to do. Encourage me, inspire me. I don't know, but he didn't know me. I know that. And uh, he turned around and he said to me, "You know what? We've had you. We've had you, your cousin here, your brother here. You know, we got rid of both of them." You know, they thought they were this and they thought they were that, but we got rid of them and we'll get rid of you. So don't think you're anything special. He was judging me by my family name. That's what he was doing. He thought I was like all my family. My family was like a massive criminal family. And uh, hmm. and he thought I was like them. And um, he didn't know me, didn't know where I'd been. That was a funny thing. But instantly I think, oh, these don't like me here. They don't like me. Hmm. And so in that moment, I made a decision. Mike, well, then you know what? I'm literally just going to do your heads in. And that's what I did. I just pursued that purpose every day. I wouldn't go in drama. I hated drama because I loved it so much. And I was, I was too much of a coward to go and do drama and, and let my friends know that that's actually what I wanted to do. My mum got a house. She hadn't lost her addiction. She hadn't stopped taking drugs like she'd said. She was still taking them. But she was like now living in an upstairs room, kind of locking herself in the room with her and her boyfriend. So 
you know, like the police, if they came in the house, they'd have to get through a lot of different doors to get to her. You know, my brother was now a heroin addict. He was like 15, 16. He was on heroin. Yeah, you know, my, my dad and his girlfriend had got him on it while I was away. So just horrific. He's still a bully, still mean, still nasty. And then in the end, I ended up living in the dining room in our house. And so we had a two-bedroom council house. And so, mm. yeah, I'm just trying to get my way through all of that stuff and through all of that life. And and then I realised I can't do the things I really want to do. A lot of the lads I'm knocking about with are saying girls are all, you know, this and the, the, you know what I'm saying, like negative words. You know, girls are kind of whatever. And my value of women at that point, obviously through my mum, was was wasn't great. And um, but deep down in my heart, I wanted love. I wanted to be a dad. I wanted to have a family. I didn't want to abandon my kids. Do you know what I mean? I wanted. To, I just wanted the life that my auntie and uncle had. That's what I wanted in my heart deep down. Mm-hmm. So I think what happened was, um. There was like this void in my life of what mm. what is my dream and ambition. And then I, I watched this movie, this gangster movie, and all of a sudden I thought, I want to be a gangster. They had this infamy, they had power, they had money, they had girls. And, um, and so I started pursuing that, started carrying knives, started um, kind of collecting protection money off kids in school who were being bullied and, you know, saying, like, give me money and then no one will bully you and, and all that. But it's still bullying, really. And mm. um, I was just getting a bit crazier. And then we ended up throwing a seat out of a bus and it hit this man, split his head open, and we mm. got kicked out of school. And then me and my mm. friend. And so that was it. I was, like, 15 then, I think, and, and thought, great, mm. no more school. Brilliant. We are smoking weed every day. I was selling drugs at that point. We were, we were, We were, you know... This is this is the life we want. Selling drugs, smoking drugs, doing what we want. But after about two months of that, I was bored. I was like seriously bored. And then everyone in my family above me, bar one or two people, had all gone to jail. And I was mm. thinking, I'm literally going to end up going in prison. And I knew I didn't want to do that. It, I didn't want to go to jail. I knew that much. So I tried getting a job. I did the job for a couple of months. Um. Then then my friends went and applied for the army. So the place I was working let me apply for that. I applied for the army. I kind of passed the test. I went and did that, got in. Yeah, and then, you know, didn't get in because of this recession. And, and so, yeah, my life just went kind of – it didn't last long. Lost the job. You know, my mum ended up getting a crack addiction. She left the house we were in. And so I'm kind of then sleeping around, sofa surfing, sleeping on stairwells, kind of homeless and – and then, and then this is how life starts snowballing. You're not a kid anymore. You're a bit more grown up. I'm kind of trying to figure my way out in the world. But again, my self-worth gets less and less and less. Yeah, in the midst of all of that, going out drinking, fighting, and I got involved with a, a local gang and, you know what, did a lot of risky things, risked a lot of time going in prison for a long time. And in the process of that, went to jail for three and a half years. And then came out and then, um, you know, mm. some people lost their lives. Um, different things happened. I seen some bad stuff. And it brought me to a point where I just I wanted to get away from it all. I'd, I'd kind of realized, like, this isn't the life I want. As much as I dreamed about it, it's not what I want. There's this moment came where I was, like, walking about with, like, knives strapped to my body and stuff. And I just thought to myself, I just want to go and move to the other side of the country. I want to go where no one knows me. I'm going to go to a college uh, and I'll just start mm. my life. 
And so that was the plan. You know, I needed money. And so essentially, I'm in this taxi. I pulled a knife out on this guy thinking, I just thought he was going to give me the money. I thought he was just going to say, there you go, son, take the money. Enjoy your life. But he didn't. He had a wife. He had children. And obviously, in that moment, he's seen them and he's, he's started fighting me. And honestly, the only thing is, is, is like a coward, isn't it? Like a coward. I wanted to get away. And so to get away, I stabbed him um, two yeah. or three times. And then I ran off and left him to die, really. Um, you know, I think that night, I'd be lying if I said I was thinking about that guy. I wasn't. I was literally just saying, woe is me all night. What's my life been worth? What's the point of my life been? You know, what the heck did I do to deserve this life? The mother, the father, whatever. Like, I've literally, what's been the point of me living? There's been no reason for me being here. And and I thought I'd killed him. So I knew I was going to jail for the rest of my life at that point. Um, mm-hmm. So on the next day, I landed myself in at a police station. Just said, I think I've killed someone. And thankfully, I hadn't. But um, that's the first time I felt guilt. I felt guilty for what I'd done to this man. Wow. I felt guilty because I'd I'd made I'd projected my whole life onto him. My fears, mm-hmm. my my anxieties. This innocent person, I'd literally laid it all on him. And 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 his children, who would probably innocent little kids who still believed in all kinds of innocent kiddie things. All of a sudden, I've just done to them what was done to me as a kid, and I've robbed their innocence, like, with that one act. And then, and then, yeah, this was when I started them being frightened of dying and hell and judgment. I didn't know what it was. I knew there was something outside of this. And this is what started my journey to find out if there was a God. So, yeah, I'm in this process of being kind of dead, but alive. And I realized mm-hmm. that my, my, I was dreaming every night of being shot and stabbed every night. I'd wake up mm-hmm. frightened. I was anxious every day. And I knew that when I got out, I was going to have this really bad problem in my head that I couldn't escape, which was me. This is while you're in prison, yeah? Yeah. yeah. And I knew I was going to get out and be frightened every day of, of dying mm. because I, it, just, it was just there. I couldn't escape mm. it. And, uh, you know, I was running from a fight. I was running from a gang. I was running from murderers. It wasn't like... I wasn't running from me. I was running from this situation in my old life. That's the reality. That's what was chasing me because I'd run away and not stood and mm. fought. Well, I would have died. So was, there was no fighting anymore. But because I'd run that, it was like that, that chased me. You're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to die. And it was like, so yeah, I knew getting out, I couldn't escape that voice. And so at that point I thought I'll just go out and take drugs and die then. And, um, and that was it. And then I met this born again Christian, and um, she was like sixty odd year old Jamaican woman. And I sat down in front of her, and as she said something to me, I kind of, I kind of saw this vision of her, like doing cartwheels forwards. And in that moment, it was like I saw that, and I felt this power hit me, and I just realised I need what this woman's got. Whatever she's got is bigger than the power that's in this world. Like that's what I felt. And then, um, you know, I was in my cell. We were smoking heroin, smoking cannabis in the cell. Inside prison? Yeah, in prison, yeah. So I've gone to sleep. I've had this dream. In this dream, which kind of brings me up today, but it's weird. But in this dream, I'm in this house, my old house. And in my house, there's a circle of people. One of them was this Jamaican guy that was in that group. He's in this group. We were all sat in a circle. And I realized we were praying. We were singing. 
I didn't know about reading mm. the Bible then at that point. All I'd seen was people praying and singing like in that meeting we'd been in. Mm. And then um, this bloke turned to me and said something to me in the, in the video. I, don't, I can't remember what he said. He said something to me, but I knew in, when he, whatever he said in that moment made me look across the road. I suppose in the spirit now, in the vision, I looked across the road and diagonally across from our house, I knew in that moment there was another circle of people gathered in a room praying, singing. And then and then from there, so it was like next door but one. You know when you go next door but one on your houses? It was like yeah. that, like a diagonal line right round the street. And I knew in every other home down that street, there was groups of people in circles praying, singing. And then anyway, I wake up. Wake up from that. Don't mean anything to me then, this dream, obviously. It's irrelevant then. I wake up, and then my mate says, oh, that priest left that Bible, and the, and the priest left the Bible for you. And I said, what priest? What Bible? So I got my Bible, got a Bible, and, you know, I go on this journey then of God incidences through the prison, where to meet these people mm. or these situations. You know, I eventually came to a point where I said, I don't think God can be for a man like me. The life I've had, mm-hmm. I think it's for good people. And I met this ex-football hooligan then a few months later who'd been in a coma and he was a tramp. He'd done all this stuff. And I remember saying, if God can be for him, he can be for me. And it changed me. I went on this Why mm-hmm. Jesus course. And at the end of that, I came to a place where I was going to give God my life. And I, and I knew either it was going to be true and he's going to reject me. It might not be true in the role imagining stuff. And then I'd lose all hope, to be honest. But the other thing was it'd be true, and he doesn't reject me. He's real, and he accepts me. And then mm-hmm. if that's true, then that's going to change my life for the rest of my life. So that, that day when I went into that chapel was probably the scariest moment of my life. It was like mm-hmm. I, had a, I had a feeling I was on a cliff, literally on a cliff, and I was about to jump off. Mm-hmm. And I was so scared, so scared of jumping off. Because the thing that terrified me the most is that there'd be no one there to catch me. And then I knew I was going to have to live this life and get out and die and probably take heroin and probably overdose and probably die. You know, but thank God he caught me. You know, I prayed (laughs) and I knew when I opened my eyes, God was real. Like, right, he's there. That was it. There's no daddy, God. None of that stuff then. Just this reality that God was real. And uh, (laughs) I went back to my jail cell. Threw all my porno mags out, cigarettes, all of that stuff. The guys who did the group left the prison. So for two weeks, I was like the holiest man you'd ever meet. And then, bang, <laughs> just crashed down. Like, I was back to my mates. Give me their magazines back. Give me my cigarettes back. And, uh, and then I was like, oh, there can't be any God. This praying I've been doing for two weeks, a waste of time. It's not working. Like, there's no God. He's not, there's this, I'm just praying into nothing. And, uh, so then I lived this life of debauchery for two weeks, if you want to call it that, in the jail. It's like whatever my flesh wanted, I was doing it. Because I just was like, this is. I just thought this is stupid. It's not even real. It can't be real. Like, I'm imagining it all. and Because um, I didn't have all these fluffy feelings. Mm. I didn't have all that stuff. It was like, yeah, I just didn't. It was weird. And, and um, But I think, I think the way I am is I respond to rejection. I think God knew this. And it's like the more he didn't give me everything I was asking for, the more I'd chase after him. So after two weeks, I just got massively depressed. And and there was this hunger in me to pray. It was like, mm-hmm. I've got to pray. And so I started praying again, closed my eyes, prayed, 
And the moment I closed my eyes, I realised, because I felt like there was a wall in front of me when I first started, and I thought that wall hadn't moved. After two weeks when I started praying again, I just felt the wall was right there again, and I realised, you know what, I'd moved that wall back in my prayers. So I knew then that something had been happening that I couldn't understand, and so I just carried on praying. So, yeah, in the prison, God began to change me from the inside out. I stopped swearing. I got guilty when I swore. I stopped doing a lot of the other things. I started getting personal battles. And then the guy I'd met, the ex-criminal, he come in. He started discipling me. And, yeah, and I, I moved jails. I started a Bible study in the new jail. I went just like a DBS, got people around the table. Let's read this story. Kind of talked to him a little bit because that's all I'd known. Small groups in the jail, small groups in the things I was in, and then mm-hmm. and then yeah, I'm, I'm praying in jail. I'm seeing a girl with dark hair, long dark hair, and I'm saying, oh "God, I want my wife to have long dark hair, and, you know, nice figure. I want my wife to have." An, I know it sounds what carnal, but it, I was part carnal, and I'm saying, "This is what I want my wife to look like." But I remember then saying, because God had spoke to me about Matthew six thirty three, I think it is, where it says, "I know what you need for you ask." And so I'd said, God, but I don't know what she needs to have inside to put up with me and love me. And yeah, so I get out and go to church and start seeing how church works. And, and I think that then affects the way I am as a Christian, because all of a sudden my, my mindset goes from whatever it was before, which I think was a disciple, to now being a convert in a church and trying to bring people to a church and other stuff. And then I meet my wife. I see her walk in and I realise this is my that's that's the girl there right there and uh, mm-hmm. she had a boyfriend at the mm-hmm. time so I was like praying him out of her life and you know <laughs> I was like nah she's mine you know and uh, yeah she was so we get married and then um, I go and get a job you know I work for ten years twelve years whatever it was every day get up go to work pay for your family provide for your family we were just normal Christian family you know my friend who's like an itinerant evangelist. We looked up to him like he was like John Wesley. He was like holier than whatever. He was a great preacher. You know, his kids were all Bible, knew the Bible backwards. And, you know, we start traveling with him. And then one day we, it like comes about, let's start this church. So, yeah, our church prays us out. We're going to start this church at the beginning. It's amazing. We've seen all these things. We go and see Ryan our bunky for a week. It's like God's just blessing us all over the place. You know, Whatever we put our hand to prospered, the financial gift pouring in, it was it was great. It was great is the only way to say it. But then it started changing over time. Little things happened. It felt like the Holy Spirit left the building. It, it felt like God left at some point. It's like the gospel became not as important. And then little things happened. And then God's speaking to me. And I think what happened was God was taking me back to that kid in jail and saying, look, I saved you for something. And it wasn't this. It wasn't to be in this room as much as it was good and enjoyable. And then this guy from China came who oversaw the China, like 200,000 people in Chinese house church. And he basically said, you know, the Western church isn't making disciples, it's making converts. And Jesus never asked for converts. He asked for disciples. And he, he unpacked over that weekend what a disciple was. And I was left at the end of that weekend. I'd cried. Me and my wife had both stood up crying I think God was taking the church out of our hands in that moment, or we were letting it go. Um, Mm -hmm. We came home. We were like, where are we going to go? Where in the world are we going to go? We realized we'd wasted a few years. There was no disciples. You know, one time I was doing the training for them for being, we're all called to be ambassadors for Christ. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, mm-hmm. So I was talking about how we all have this calling, one calling, which is to be ambassadors, witnesses, basically. And I gave him 10 simple points out of be a witness. Dead easy. Look at someone in the face. Say hello. Look at the name tag. Walk a bit more. Um, ba- really basic stuff, like just basic human being stuff. Forget Christian stuff. And two months later, I was preaching on deliverance. And this, this is our leaders training. 50 leaders, their training. And I felt the Holy Spirit asked me, how many of you remember what I shared two months ago about being a witness? So I asked them. They all put their hands up. I said, look, I'm not being whatever, but how many have done anything about it? How many put it into practice? All the hands went down. I think that moment, I'm wasting my time here. Like, what am I doing? Literally, what am I doing here? And then I'm on this mode then. I think God's calling us out of the church. God's separated from what we're doing. So there's this natural process, grieving process, separation process we're going through. And then two months after that, this man frees us to death in England on the street. 12.30, he freezes to death. He's dead on the street. And I think for me at that moment, it was like the final nail in the coffin. And I'm just mindful of the words God had given me. He came to seek and save those who are perishing. God said, go. Mm-hmm. These are the last messages he gave me to preach to the church. And I was just like, you know what? I think we're done. Everyone in this building is safe. They're happy. They're okay. Like they're okay. There's nothing wrong with it. But they're all good. But there's a massive need out there. There's people who don't know this God. There's people who don't know that if they need, they can pray. They can talk to him. Like if, if, if their marriage is going wrong, they can talk to God. He'll come and help them. Like they don't even know that. So mm-hmm. that was the start of the process, brother. And I'll just speed it along now because it's been a bit, I know we've gone over a bit. Leaving that situation was not great. We weren't celebrated. We weren't encouraged. We weren't whatever. It caused my wife a lot of grief, a lot of hurt, a lot of pain. We went through it. We've worked through it. And like I said, for four years, we put our hand to different things. It was me being irrational, really. I should have just... Mm. God said, when you leave, do nothing and pray. I did the opposite of that. I didn't pray, and I went and started helping my mate work with the homeless. So what you learn from the Bible is when you just act in the flesh, you get an Ishmael, don't you? You don't you don't get an Isaac, you get an Ishmael. And so mm. I just kept getting these Ishmaels all the time. They, they, they were good for a little season, and then they just brought this negativity into our life. And then, yeah, so we, we started on this process, and then we started seeing things, and I started reading the Bible, seeing other people, listening to podcasts about people around the world who were actually starting like discipleship making movements, who were going into communities, who were reaching people, normal families, normal people. And uh, and yeah, I had that vision on my heart is for the people where we are, for many, many homes to be open for people to gather and pray. Mm. And then at some point in that journey, God reminded me of that vision from in the jail. And I kind of started seeing like it all connected. I think God's always kind of had me for this work. He's prepared me for yeah. this work. He's trained me for this work. This is my upbringing. It's my childhood and the faith. It's all I knew. I just got lost in the middle. And um, mm-hmm. so it cost us everything, really, to come out of that. And honestly, you know what? The truth is, the biggest work I think God had to do was in me. I think what mm-hmm. he revealed in me was pride I didn't think I had. There's a passage in the Bible that says, that often things we do can be selfish ambition and vain glory. I think I had that. I think you had to take that out. He says he humbles the proud. I got humbled. He revealed things in me that were like, must have been there for years, just deep filth and addiction and other stuff. And all of that in the process of the last four years, the breaking, the pummeling has been brought out, I think. 
which then brought mm-hmm. me to a place where I think last May, and we've been talking for two years now, but I think last May, where we probably at the point, like, I don't think we can do this. Because, again, I'd run off and left Stella and other stuff and not run off and left her, like, in my marriage, but spiritually, I'm out saving the world and she's at home, like, with no money and trying to look after the kids, you know what I'm saying? Yes. But I think, yeah, now, in May, we both said we're going to, like, give it a year, let's go for it. And, and so we just followed... Obviously, we've had that relationship with you. I've been through the training with you guys, and we use that blueprint. First quarter, pray. Just pray. So we started praying. And then, you know what? A couple of people gathered us. We started, we're just going to disciple our kids in our front room on a Sunday. That's it. And then God mm-hmm. spoke and said, Go to Hamilton, this place where there was massive antisocial stuff, 90 odd year old women being knocked out with bricks and houses being burnt down and a lot of violence, a community living in absolute terror and stuff and 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 so we've just been following literal god's voice and uh yeah i'm just the thing god said to me in jail was any person with jesus in their life is a different person wow my mum plus jesus is a different mum yeah my dad plus jesus is a different dad yeah. my brother plus jesus different brother so my brother's dead now he died in a car crash Three months before that, he met Jesus, got saved. Mm-hmm. Dad died when I was 20 of a brain hemorrhage. Don't know if he's saved. But God showed me any life with Jesus is a different life. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing on my heart, I think. That's what's always been there, is get Jesus to people. I just think now we're doing it as a family. Yeah. yeah. We pray as a family. We pray for the people we meet on the street as a family. We pray for needs. God's answered these needs. He's done great things. You know, we, we, we now have one or two homes opened up that I've kind of encouraged to open up in in this rough area. We're seeing relationships and connections begin to be joined in the physical. That's nothing to do with Christianity, but it's raising up leaders and people who can help other people in that estate. Mm-hmm. So that's great. My wife has, has, you know, got a girl out of from nowhere, really, an older lady who had an horrific childhood. She now comes here on a Sunday She's got a little sewing group she started. She's doing stuff with a friend. You know, we, we I feel we are in God's will now for our life. I think we're doing it to his tune. I think we're doing it the right way. Um, and we're on the same page. Mm. We're battered every day. We're assailed every day with unconfidence and other stuff every day. But we know we're on the right path. Yeah, that's the reality now. Yeah, and um, personally, I think having you guys, um, your support, you're encouraging, you you're mentoring. I rang you when I was in Texas. I remember mm-hmm. God told me in Texas because I'd heard your podcast as well. God told me when I was in Texas to message you if you remember rightly, and asked like, would you be like a mentor or an older brother in my life? You remember? Mm-hmm. And um, and that was the first kind of message I sent you. Then I'd sent you one before that. God was very clear after that. And I think over the process of knowing you, my wife's now got to know you. We feel very much a part of it. We feel very connected. You know, I've been ordained, haven't I? And, you know, not into the Church of England, but it's there off the Lord. And, yeah, I just, we're excited. Absolutely powerful story. But the the power of the story is, you know, it took me some time to to just just hear your story and go, wow. This is the real deal, and you were, you were, um, you were from some of the roughest 
background um, that one could imagine. You know, at nine years old, you hear what you're doing and you go, I can't imagine my nine-year-old son doing that. And 15, and you're suddenly suddenly there. But suddenly God has brought you back from that vision in the jail of circles, starting circles of people, and that powerful statement, you know, Jesus plus that person changes everything. And and suddenly yeah. suddenly you're walking back into places like Hamlington, who which is just just an estate that I don't think we in Australia really understand the roughness of these places and the gangs of youth that are out of control and the the deep deep hurt and pain, but how God is using yeah. that and um, you know God has blessed you with a family and a wife that's just um, in the vision as well. And it's so exciting, Paul, so exciting to not only hear your story, but see how God has brought you full circle right back into reaching reaching back into what you were encountering as a kid yeah. <laughs> and, and the people there. Yeah. Amazing, amazing story. And it's what a, what a privilege to, to get to know you and Stella and, and hear the story. And uh, as, as you journey on, I'm, just, I'm sure people listening to the podcast, those who are part of the Praxis community, but others as well, they're just going to uh, hear more from you over the years and see what God's going to do. But um, I'm, I'm just absolutely amazed at the work of Jesus in your life and, and um, how he's transformed you. What, as we finish the podcast, what word of encouragement uh, and or, or exhortation would you give to those who are listening to the podcast to encourage them in their situation? Yeah, do you know what? What's on my mind is my like the favorite. It's one of my favorite verses in all Bible. I think it's the one thing God's always kind of said to me that I think is my verse. I know people have my verse, but mm. it's, it's it's Luke four, um, verse eighteen and nineteen. And it's where Jesus basically said he's, he's anointed and he's, he's anointed to preach good news to the poor, to give sight to the blind, you know, to proclaim liberty to the captives, you know, set the people who are oppressed free, declare the year of Jubilee. And I just think really in, in reality, we're just surrounded by so many people who are imprisoned and we're blind. And, and, and whatever we do, whatever little thing we do, it could be a smile. A smile is enough sometimes. A smile is like, a smile is the start of something. All these little things we do, whatever it is we do as Christians, it carries power, carries weight. And so I just think to like, just be regalvanized in, in the fact of what we're doing. There's a war on, like as much as there's a war in Ukraine and all these places, there's a definite war on and Satan's intelligent and he, and he has intelligence. And you know what? He, He'll often remind us of what, like my brother reminded me, you're weak, you're pathetic, you're useless. Satan says the same things. And it's like, yeah, do you know what? It doesn't matter. I think we were talking yesterday, and this is what this is what really matters. We're looking to go kind of support missionaries over here right now. And, and, and at first, when we looked at what we should be bringing in, we balked at that. Like, that's a lot of money to us, like living over here. Mm. But when I thought about it, when I start seeing the people who are being reached by us, by friends, like what's their value? They're worth that money all day long. They're worth that amount of money. Mm-hmm. This this woman who's coming to our home, who when she was a little girl, her mum was mentally ill, thought she was an actual dog, 
was walking around the house barking, and she has a memory of being stood at a window looking out at her friends playing because she literally had rags for clothes. And her mum was biting her leg like a dog. That woman is worth way more than whatever we're going to be bringing in. She's worth our prayer. She's worth our sacrifice. She's worth everything. And Jesus is worth everything. And I think that's what it's about. Everyone around us is blind, imprisoned, hurt, broken, trapped by this horrible, evil, abusive person. And we're at a war. We're at a war to liberate people from all of that. So just keep going. Take the bullets. Take the shots. Keep going. And one last word of encouragement is this. Your wife, your family matter. As a man, it's very easy to run off and leave your wife behind and kind of let her catch up. But my advice is stop if you're ahead of your wife and let her catch up and be a team, do it together. It's much better, much more important and blesses your marriage more. So, yeah, I just want to pray, Father, for everyone who's listening. God, please, would you just re-encourage them that whatever they're doing, whatever it is for your kingdom... It's massively important. Without them doing what they're doing for your kingdom, there's a massive void that will only be filled by Satan and darkness and evil. And I also want to pray, God, for their marriages. I pray for every marriage to be filled with trust, forgiveness, respect, honesty, and teamwork, and passion, and love. And bless every marriage, God. Bless their work. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.